This episode of the Officer Down Memorial Podcast is sponsored in part by Law Enforcement Labor Services in Minnesota. Law Enforcement Labor Services, also known as LELS, is Minnesota's largest public safety labor union with over 7,000 Minnesota public safety members serving in all areas of public safety. Law enforcement, 911 dispatch centers, corrections, public safety administrative support personnel, and firefighters. Established in 1977, LELS serves over 260 different public safety agencies and over 450 locals across the state of Minnesota. With their administration, general counsel, three staff attorneys, and 14 business agents, LELS provides contract negotiations for better wages and benefits, grievance processing and representation, discipline representation, mediation and arbitration, assistance with representation for post-board hearings, and in-line-of-duty death benefits for survivor families. Find out more about Law Enforcement Labor Services at LELS.org. LELS.org. Episodes of the Officer Down Memorial Podcast may contain strong language and violent content. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, everyone, and welcome. I'm Sheriff Scott Rose from Minnesota, and I'm your host for today's new episode of the Officer Down Memorial Podcast. In each episode of the Officer Down Memorial Podcast, we'll share the details and the stories of how these men and women heroically lost their lives in the line of duty. Our mission is to help ensure their service and sacrifice is never forgotten. Thanks for spending some time with me today to remember and honor these fallen heroes. Brian David Kleinfelter. Brian was born on April 15th, 1970 in Wisconsin to David and Lois Kleinfelter. They moved to central Minnesota where Brian would grow up and graduate from Apollo High School in St. Cloud and as a law enforcement graduate at St. Cloud Technical College. He was serving as a police officer for a small police department in St. Joseph, about an hour northwest of the cities in central Minnesota. Officer Brian Kleinfelter was badge 775. Brian's wife was Wendy Kleinfelter. St. Joe was a suburb of St. Cloud. St. Cloud is a larger population center in central Minnesota. St. Joe is kind of an outskirt. St. Joe, Sartell, Cold Spring, there's this kind of ring around St. Cloud. Um, it had, so it was like 3,600 people. But once the school year started, there are two colleges, St. Ben's and St. John's are in the town of St. Joe. And so their population pretty much doubles during the school year. Typical small town, you know, my mom and I both, there were two small town grocery stores. She worked at one, I worked at the other. Um, there's a, you know, a bar to like four churches and you know, the post office and the, and the cop shop. You know, just your typical small town. St. Joseph was also the community known to be where Jacob Wetterling was abducted just seven years prior, and he was still missing at the time. A couple of years before Brian was killed, Jacob Wetterling was abducted from St. Joe, which in itself was another really unusual, you know, big-time city occurrence to happen in a little town like St. Joe. 
Bill Clinton was our 42nd president and had just given his State of the Union speech that month, gearing up for a battle for re-election in the fall against former Senate Majority Leader Bob Dole, the Republican nominee, and Ross Perot, the Reform Party nominee. America has always sought and always risen to every challenge. Who would say that having come so far together, we will not go forward from here? Who would say that this age of possibility is not for all Americans? Our country is and always has been a great and good nation. But the best is yet to come if we all do our part. Thank you, God bless you, and God bless the United States of America. Thank you. One of the worst blizzards in American history hit the eastern states that month, killing more than 150 people. Philadelphia received a record 30 inches of snowfall. New York City's public schools closed for the first time in 18 years. And the federal government in Washington, D.C. was closed for days. Now, Eyewitness News. This live picture from Elizabeth, New Jersey, says it all. We are buried under countless tons of snow tonight, and digging out is going to be a real challenge. Good evening, I'm Bill Butel. The snow has stopped falling, but it's going to be a very long time indeed before we can forget the power and the fury of the blizzard of 96. New York and New Jersey are still under states of emergency, and we have a lot of information to bring to you tonight. The metro area Texans were still celebrating Super Bowl 30 when the Dallas Cowboys became the first NFL franchise to win three Super Bowls in a span of four seasons. As they defeated the Pittsburgh Steelers 27-17 at Sun Devil Stadium in Tempe, Arizona. It was the Cowboys' fifth Super Bowl championship. Watkins in motion, handoff Emmitt Smith on the right-hand side. Touchdown, Emmitt Smith scores! And Dallas, your Cowboys are world champions again. Most valuable player at Super Bowl 30, Larry Brown. Victory was final vindication. The year was 1996. Bob Dickhouse was a young Stearns County deputy working the night shift that night. You know, we have the sheriff's office and then the city of St. Cloud. The city of St. Cloud is by far the biggest agency in, in the county. They had, you know, at that time, probably 70 officers where we had 35 or 40, I think we had 40. Um, <clears throat> and then the, the other communities, I think there was about another seven of them out there. You know, there were all the smaller communities like uh, uh, St. Joe and um, Melrose and Sox Center and Painesville, you know, all, all these towns along I-94 and then uh, Highway 23. So, you know, it's just a, a couple of larger departments and then the smaller agencies. Uh, we spent most of our time helping the smaller agencies, working with them. St. Cloud had enough officers that they really didn't need our help. So we would try to get out of town, you know, get out into the county. Once you left the, the law enforcement center, you kind of expected to, to get out of town and you know, go patrol and, and help the other, the smaller communities. January is typically the coldest month of the winter in Minnesota, with average high temperatures reaching only 21 degrees. That night, it was brutally cold and windy, with wind chills between 30 and 40 below zero. At those temperatures, frostbite and hypothermia can develop in as little as 10 minutes. 
These are dangerous conditions to be working outside. And usually the only people working outside in these elements in Minnesota are first responders and law enforcement like Brian. Until you experience it, I don't know how you even describe it. It's, it's the kind of cold that, you know, you literally won't live if you're out in it for more than a few minutes uncovered, you know. And it, it was historic. You know, it was that whole week was, you know, we had the governor shut down schools in the state of Minnesota, which I think has only happened once since then. And then it was with wind chills, it was 40 below brutally cold and it's a Monday night and so when Brian says he wants to comp out and come home early I'm like perfect <laughs> you know be warm we can eat because I hadn't eaten yet yeah that, that was the plan it's hard to describe how cold it is when you're trying to work in it um, in law enforcement you generally dress for the cold but you can't dress 100% for the cold because you're not planning on being outside the whole time, you know, so you, you, you wear something warm, as warm as you can be while still do your job and be able to get at your equipment, but it's usually, you know, when it's that cold, it's just not enough clothing, and it's not designed to be outside that long, you know, so you end up kind of, you know, wearing sweaters and, and light jackets so you can still do your job. Jim Mortensen was a lieutenant serving with the St. Cloud Police Department that night. There's three things that get cold right away. It's going to be your your feet, your hands, and your head. And if your head isn't covered appropriately, um, that's where you're going to lose the most amount of heat, you know, in a, in, a, in a short time frame. So like that evening I had on a set of work boots that it wasn't like they were snowmobile boots. It was a set of uh, lightly insulated work boots because you're not prepared to stand outside as long as we did. And so by the time we did our ground search that evening, it was, my my boots were frozen solid. They wouldn't flex anymore. Fortunately, on nights like this, it's usually pretty slow for law enforcement. Most people don't want to venture out into the bitter cold. Even the bad guys usually stay home. During his shift, Brian called Wendy, and he told her he decided he was going to cut out early that night. He was going to come home at night, halfway through his shift, and he did call. He called me um, and said he was thinking about comping out. Had I eaten, and did I want him to pick up some Bo Diddley's? Um, Bo Diddley's is a little sandwich shop in town, and I you know, said, that sounds great, and um, I'll see you in a little bit. Surveillance cameras show Brian walking into the Super America store in St. Joseph that night around 8.30 p.m. He was looking for a movie to bring home for he and Wendy to watch after they ate dinner. Another man by the name of Ken Raring Jr. was at the store too. He walked in about 90 seconds after Brian. He purchased a 16-ounce bottle of soda and a 50-foot length of Helping Hand brand clothesline. A pretty unusual purchase in January in Minnesota. It was Monday. January 29th. The Freeway Liquor Store was a typical small town, locally owned liquor store in Albany, which is about 15 minutes west of St. Joseph. 
Ruth Tam was the sole clerk working at the small liquor store that night. It was Monday night. It was brutally cold outside, and typically on evenings like this, things are pretty slow at the store. Around 8.45 p.m. that night, Ruth heard a truck pull up outside. Three men in ski masks walked into the store. One of the three had a handgun, and he pointed it at Ruth. He demanded the money from the cash register. Ruth thought the men were kids. She thought they were kidding around. Ruth worked at the high school during the day and worked part-time nights at the liquor store, and she thought they recognized her and were just going to give her a hard time. When the gunman pointed the gun at her head and threatened to shoot her, she realized this was real and gave them the money from the till. There was $370 in the cash register, the whole day's worth of sales. The gunman then ordered her into the back room and into the cooler. She argued with him, saying she would die in there and she refused to go in. The gunman, frustrated with Ruth, then handed the gun to the other two. He sat her down on a stack of beer cases and he tied her hands behind her back with clothesline rope that they had just bought a short time earlier. They sat her down, tied her up, and they ran out the door. When she felt they were gone and she was safe, she worked her hands loose from the clothesline and she called 911 at 9.02 p.m. Sheriff Carmen. Yeah, I'm calling from Albany uh, Freeway Liquors. I just been robbed. You just been robbed? Yeah. Okay. Are you at the Shamrock Lane? Yeah. Who robbed you, ma'am? I don't know. Three kids. Are you injured at all, ma'am? No, they tied me up, but they they I just them tie me up. Let me go. I'll be here all night. Then he said he's got wash line wire and stuff. Yeah. Okay, how long ago did they leave? Oh, probably five, six minutes. Five to six minutes ago? Yeah, I think so. Well, maybe a little long since I sat there trying to get my arms moved. The Stearns County Dispatch Center then gave the call out on the radio. 612, if you would be en route to Albany, reference a holdup which just occurred at Freeway Liquor. Three white males, they did have a handgun in their possession. 104, is that pulled up by the trailer park? That would be the one on the hill near Sands Cafe. 104, three white males, any vehicle description? Be an older white pickup truck. Okay. An older white pickup truck. Okay. 612, last uh, ETA, they left about five minutes ago. Station, I believe possible suspect vehicle in that incident is an older white pickup. That's correct. The victim is stating that Prior to the robbery, she witnessed a white pickup truck go past her shore. She heard some yelling, and then she didn't see the pickup truck. The three white males entered in the front of the store but left through the rear of the store. A black mask was used. She believes one of the males had glasses on. And for a handgun or a long gun? Handgun. We were at the union meeting and Sergeant Hessian came over to our group and he had taken a phone call and he had said that there had just been a robbery at the liquor store in Albany where uh, three guys had uh, tied up the clerk, had displayed a weapon and um, fled. 
So Albany being kind of on the west edge of my territory, um, I said, well, I'll head out there. Albany officer was on the way over too. They were going to start the investigation or whoever got there first would at least start asking some questions, see what was going on. So I had about a 20 minute code run ahead of me. So I said, I'll be on my way. You know, everybody else was clearing out of there too. And they were going to, you know, kind of fan out and start looking for this white pickup that had been reported as a possible suspect vehicle. So I, you know, boogied down the stairs and uh, jumped in my squad and headed out of town. It was icy. It's super cold. It's, you know, nine o'clock at night. Um, No traffic on a Monday. So it wasn't too bad. I get out onto County Road 75, which is kind of the main road out to the west, heads towards I-94. And I, you know, kind of put the pedal down and I, I wound up tight and, I was going about 100 miles an hour, and that's when I heard the radio call from St. Joe, Officer Kleinfelder, saying that uh, he was behind a white pickup that was traveling eastbound on 75, which is coming right at me, but he's still probably, you know, five miles away from me out front. Brian was one of the newer officers. He was young. He was enthusiastic. He was aggressive. He loved the job. And when the call came out, he was in the office, and he said he wanted to go out and help. A few minutes later, he called out that he was behind a white Chevy pickup. It was a newer truck. It wasn't an older pickup like was reported, but it was occupied by three people. He stopped it at 9.14 p.m. 775. 775. She said it was an older vehicle. I'm following a white Chevy. Uh, pickup truck, newer model. Three occupants, uh, eastbound 25. Police stopping them. Trial 33. 1428. Snow covered. Deputy Bob Dickhouse was Unit 2582, one of the Stearns County deputies working that night. He heard Brian call out the traffic stop. He was just a few minutes away, and he was first on scene. 2582, did you advise you would back 775? 2115. Further on that, they had latex gloves, no cab on the truck. When Bob arrived, it was 9.17. He found Brian laying on the roadway. He'd been shot several times. Brian's handgun was still in his hand. 2582, copy 1033 traffic. Station will be 1033 traffic at 2116. I got the second kill officer down. Uh, Cardinal 75 by 133. No suspect vehicle in the area at this time. I need an ambulance to rescue. 10 4, we got him going. 2582, 2555. Go ahead, sir. I do have a witness with me. I have her in my car. If we need her to identify something. 10 4, what do we exactly got? He's uh, got a gunshot wound to the CPR. That white pickup that uh, he said he stopped, that's apparently the one, three, three mil. 10 fours. Uh, they continued east on 75 or where? 10 four. Right foot, St. Cloud, she said. 10 four. Station, you guys, St. Cloud notified? 10 four, they are. Brenda Hummerding was a nurse at St. Cloud Hospital. She was on her way to work when she saw two police cars and what she believed was someone lying on the pavement. She stopped to help while Bob was back at his squad getting medical equipment out of his trunk. As I'm driving on County Road 75, I, I see, you know, the, 
headlights of a squad car on the side of the road and kind of pull over into the left-hand lane and and then there's something or like a, you know first I'm like seeing it and I'm like oh, what is that in the road and then I realize it's a person so I'm like oh my gosh I have to stop so I pulled over but I pulled over ahead you know like I pulled up a ways and then ran back to where the officer which ended up being Brian um, was laying in the middle of the road I didn't see the officer in the in the back of the squad car trying to get medical equipment out of the back end and so um, when when I got there got to Brian and I could see that he was you know agonal breathing and I'm like what is going on you know I had no outward sign that that he had a gunshot wound in his neck and you know I'm like holy cow what a you know I'm I'm not an emergency room nurse I'm a I'm a medical on the floor bedside nurse so um you know you just kind of go with your gut instinct and the officer came up behind me and, and said he's been shot and he told me that he was shot in the neck and and so you know we just did what we could and pray the rescue squad was going to come quickly which you know pretty much seemed like forever to get there so talk you know just talked out loud to brian and tried to clear the airway a little bit and I mean, we didn't it it was so cold um none of the equipment was was stiff and didn't want to work and the rescue squad finally did get there and and, and it was probably only just a couple minutes i mean time stands still when you're in a situation like that but yeah we uh the rescue squad got there and I stayed right next to Brian and helped take off his vest and, you know, just did whatever I could, put some pressure on one of his wounds and stayed with him and held his hand and talked to him and, you know, just like everybody else was, you know, cheering him on. And then after, yeah, ever after the rescue squad took him away, it's kind of like, okay, well, I got to go back to work now. The rescue squad got there, and the ambulance seemed like it only took about three minutes, and it was there. And I remember coming down the wrong way of Hunter 75, you know, right at us, which was, you know, like, thank God. <laughs> this thing got there. There's an ambulance here. And they just wheeled it around. You know, I don't know who got him in the, in the oncoming lane, but it was like, thank God you guys are here. And they whipped around, and we picked up Brian, you know, and got him into the, into the ambulance, and he was gone, just like that. You know, and then I stood there, you know, frozen, and, you know, just stunned by what had just happened and what I'd just seen and looking at people like, you know, did that really just happen? And what, you know, what do we do now? You know, and trying to reflect, you know, and that, you know, people left. I mean, the, the, the nurses had left because it was, they were freezing. Um, you know, Brian, Brian had frozen to the ground, you know, the blood that had come out of his head immediately froze on the tar and in his hair. So we were, you know, just those things we were trying to accomplish were, magnified by you know tenfold as what should be easy is not easy when it's that cold out you know and you know and he was gone and and uh, you know there's, there's weapon laying on the ground there's you know casings all over there's you know there's medical equipment mixed in i just everybody just don't touch anything just get out of here you know step back to your your fire trucks and don't move you know we're gonna just seal it like that you know and then and, and as this is going on and I've, you know, my radio's making noise, you know, I'm starting to pick up, you know, car chases that are happening, you know, another shots fired call. Um, I'm, I'm having trouble even, you know, processing the information that's happening because it's happening so fast. 
They don't know where the suspects went, if they're just around the corner or if they're, you know, miles away. You know, it was just, it was just crazy. Station all units, copy for agency assist. Have a St. Joe officer got down gunshot wound. Suspect vehicles possibly entering on 134 by Finger Hut, Ridgewood Road. Vehicle we're looking for is an older white pickup with three juvenile white males under the age of 20. There's no topper, no extended cab. County had a robbery occur in St. Joe, approximately 10 in correction in Avon. This is the same suspect vehicle. They've now got a St. Joe officer down. Gunshot wound. Lieutenant Jim Mortensen was working for St. Cloud PD that night. He was Unit 34. Jim had been with the department for about nine years. He was on routine patrol that night. He was on break having lunch with his wife, who was working as a paramedic. While visiting, they heard information come over both of their portable radios about the shooting and about the suspect vehicle. Dispatch advised they suspected the vehicle was headed towards St. Cloud on County Road 134. I was at, Girl, at the Gold Cross Ambulance Base um, having lunch, my wife at the time, and the call came out. Uh, see, we were on different radio systems. St. Cloud PD was significantly ahead of its time back then when it came to radio systems. We were on what's called an 800 megahertz trunk system, and the rest of the county was still on VHF. So we could not hear Stearns County and the smaller departments. We did not have them uh, to where we could hear them uh, as they were talking on the radio. So when this came out over the radio, uh, my wife at the time had her radio on so I could hear uh, portions of it. And then I could, because she was a paramedic, and I could I could hear what had happened. And they said that, you know, an officer has been shot in St. Joe, um, in the city of St. Joseph and that they're initiating CPR. Well, knowing what happens when you initiate CPR, you know, that, that is something that, I mean, that means it is the, this, this officer is in grave danger of, of staying alive if they've already started CPR. Jim ran out to his squad. He was en route looking for the white Chevy pickup along with officers from all over the area. Twenty-one ten. Twenty-one ten. Station, I believe possible suspect vehicle in that incident is an older white pickup. That's correct. The victim is stating that prior to the robbery, she witnessed a white pickup truck go past her shore. She heard some yelling, and then she didn't see the pickup truck. The three white males entered in the front of the store but left through the rear of the store. A black ski mask was used. She believes one of the males had glasses on. And for a handgun or a long gun? Handgun. It's 9.24 p.m. 
As Jim neared County Road 134 and 8th Street North, he observed a, a white newer model truck driving northeast through the parking lot of Little Dukes West, located on Ridgewood Road. So when I get to the intersection of County Road 134 and 8th Street, uh, there's a small uh, business complex there. Uh, it has a Little Dukes convenience store and some other small businesses in the complex. And uh, dispatch had given us the description of the vehicle as an older white Chevy pickup. So when I get to that intersection, I see a pickup truck uh, speeding through the parking lot, uh, zigzagging back and forth with the with the rear end of the vehicle sliding uh, sideways, and you know they're trying to get some speed built up. And uh, well, what they're trying to do was cut through that parking lot to get back out onto A Street North and then head out of the city of St. Cloud on County Road 2, which would bring you out into Stearns County. I radio in, uh, told them that I was uh, behind a vehicle, occupied three times. Um, the, the plate was snow covered, uh, but I said it was a newer white pickup. 34. 34. I've got a, it's not an older, but it's a newer white Chevy pickup that just pulled, went through Little Dukes. I believe it's occupied by three people. We're heading uh, westbound on uh, corner four. License plate is obscured on it. 10-4. I am at A Street, I'm at Leland. I'm right here, 90s at uh, A Street, County Ridge Road, heading west. 40 to 50 units, maintain your positions. So as I'm following the vehicle, they slow down and pull over to the shoulder of the road uh, to try to get me to do a traffic stop on them. I mean, at no point in time do I turn my red lights on. They obviously know I'm behind them. Uh, they pull over to the shoulder of the road on their own on their own behalf. And uh, so I just stopped in the traffic lane. I didn't pull over to the shoulder. I just stopped about 100 yards behind them because I knew they had already shot an officer. I knew that uh, if I got myself up there and got in range, I was going to get into a gun battle where it's three of them and one of me. So I just sat in traffic, uh, blocked the traffic lane so no one could get around me. And then as they stopped on the shoulder, they stopped for a brief period of time, and then they slowly pulled back out again. 34. St. Joe advised it was a newer pickup. They're taking a left on 18th Street North off of Connor Road 4, heading into the residential area. Just going past Patterson Road now. Still heading on 18th Street North. They're uh, kind of slowing and going here. Keep stopping. Now taking a right off the next road. Dispatch, keep your map out. So I follow them and we almost immediately get into an area of the city of St. Cloud that I was not familiar with because we had annexed um, St. Cloud Township just um, at the beginning of the month on January 1st. And so we had, we had basically doubled the size of our city land-wise. So obviously in that short of amount of time, uh, we did not have uh, the ability to learn all the new roads. 
And so that's why when you hear on the radio transmission, I'm telling dispatch the roads that I'm turning on, but I don't know. Because you get, you get kind of twisted around because they, they, they had pulled into a subdivision that I had never been in before and pulled into the subdivision and, uh, and was starting to drive around the neighborhood as I followed it. And they pulled over um, three different times on me once out on the main roadway and then a couple different times in this subdivision to try to suck me into a traffic stop. Each time I just do the same thing. I just stop in traffic, stay about a hundred yards back from them and, uh, and then put, you know, put my high beams on them so I could blind them and just, I wasn't going to get sucked into a traffic stop. I was waiting for my backup to get to me. So ultimately I follow them down a couple different uh, roadways in that new subdivision and then they pull into a driveway and then the three of them just bail out on me. Uh, one goes um, one direction and two go a different direction. They're on Bromo Avenue, they're running to the left of the roadway. Get three units up here and call for a canine because they're all on foot in the snow. Which way to go, Morty? Take a left on Patterson? I'm on Bromo Avenue and they stopped in a residential area and they got out and started fleeing through the yards. I'm at 18th and Patterson Dispatch. Can you assist me in which way you're at? Go through Patterson. Just keep going straight and you're going to come up to Bromo Avenue. So at that time I activate my red lights because I don't know if they're circling these houses and they're going to ambush me. Um, so I, I grab my shotgun. I mean, I already had it out of the lock anyways, but I grab my shotgun and then I go around to the back side of my squad. I activate my red lights, my spotlight to throw light in that direction and to, to try and blind them if they're going to come out at me because I'm sitting right where the lights are so I can see, but if they're looking back at me, they're gonna get blinded. And so then I just crouched down by my engine block because like I said, I didn't know if they were, you know, gonna circle around behind these houses and come back out and ambush me. Um, and then shortly thereafter, my couple of cars arrived to back me up. It's 9.38 p.m. now. Douglas Thompson and his wife lived just down the road from where the pickup had stopped and the suspects had fled. Jim was there now with his backup officers explaining to them what happened. Douglas was with his wife. They were in the bedroom. They were watching the news when they heard someone pounding on the door. Douglas answers the door, and a man comes rushing through the door with a handgun, pointing it at them, saying he needed a car. Douglas told him where the keys to the cars were. He said, take one. The armed man ordered Douglas out to the garage. He ordered him to drive the vehicle while the man was in the back seat with the handgun pointing at Douglas. Driving down the road, police officers were coming in both directions of the house, and Douglas was warned if he tried to tip the police off, he'd get shot. The armed man had now kidnapped Douglas. He would later be identified as 26-year-old Thomas Leo Cantor the driver of the white pickup, the man who shot Brian Kleinfelter. As soon as Douglas and Cantor pull away with the Thompson vehicle, Douglas's daughter calls 911. 911. Hi, um, a man just came in my house with a gun and he took my dad. 
Then the victim's wife runs down the road towards Jim and the other officers. As I'm explaining to the two officers what's going on, uh, shortly thereafter, uh, a lady comes running down the road, road in her robe, um, her nightgown, and uh, advised us that her husband had just been abducted. Uh, it took me a couple minutes to put two and two together because I'm thinking these all these guys are running on foot, and I'm not putting it together that one of them broke broke into a house and then you know ultimately i later found out that they broke you know one of them broke into a house took the male her husband captive and 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 kidnapped him threw him in the trunk of the squad and then left the area in their vehicle um so it took us a little bit to get that figured out but ultimately once we got that figured out we put that over the radio so now we know we have at least one guy um, that is mobile in a vehicle and has a hostage. And then we have the other two uh, that we believe are still in the area out on foot that we need to apprehend. Jim and the other officers there start searching the neighborhood following the other two suspects' tracks in the snow. It was dark, and the snow in the yards they were tracking through was nearly waist deep. You know, there's not too many times in my career that I can say that I was, you know, truly scared. But you know, uh, when when you're in that situation, you know they've pulled the trigger on an officer, so you know they have the guts to do it. 
and now you got to go and track them down and you're on foot so when we started our ground search for the other two i mean it's pitch blackout we're walking in snow that's waist deep um you know we had a canine with us on lead um but we're just sitting ducks i mean they could pop out around uh you know any corner any bush any tree and they'd have us to the canine officer who was assisting with tracking, there was a ton of other officers who responded to help. Yeah, the, the, the cavalry definitely came. I mean, there was cars everywhere. Um, it's not like there wasn't, like, there was just the three of us out there, but it was the three of us that were on the ground search side of it while everyone else maintained the perimeter and were checking the streets. As they continue to track and the dog continues to indicate they're confident that the other two suspects are still in their perimeter. 793. 793. While Jim and the other officers continued to search for the two other suspects on foot, Cantor was still out with his hostage. After Douglas had driven them out of the neighborhood and outside of the perimeter, Cantor ordered him to go down a road he'd never been on. The roads were slippery and snow-packed. Cantor made him stop, and at gunpoint, he forced Douglas, with just a sweatshirt and blue jeans on, into the trunk of the car. Now, Cantor was driving. Douglas was in the trunk, and he was freezing. He started reciting the Lord's Prayer. He started reciting the 23rd Psalm and started saying, God of mercy, God of might, help me get through this night. As Cantor continued to drive, a Benton County deputy recognized the vehicle from the description given from dispatch, and she called it in. 10-4, last known two suspects were running down Cypress. Station 1 to any units. Southbound Benton Drive, Doc Rabbits is preparing to stop the 1029 vehicle. It is southbound on Benton Drive. It's between Sartell and Sock Rabbits. It was 10 p.m., 20 minutes after they left the Thompson house, and Douglas feels the car is stopping. Benton County Deputy Nancy Wigan, who was in the area to help search for the stolen car, finds it and she calls it in. She got behind it and the vehicle pulled over without her activating her lights or siren. She indicated the sole occupant of the vehicle exited out the driver's door with a gun in his hand. Douglas hears the car door open and recalled hearing footsteps on the compacted snow. Then, Douglas hears a female voice yelling, drop the gun. 
Deputy Wigan ordered Cantor to drop the gun. He did not, and he started walking towards her with the gun down to his side. She again ordered him to drop the weapon as she moved back to the backside of her squad car for cover. She continued to give verbal commands to the suspect while backing around her vehicle until she completed a circle around her car and at this point, the suspect, who was standing in front of the passenger side door across the hood from Deputy Wigan, pointed the gun at her. It was at this point, in fear for her life, she fired one round, striking Cantor in the chest. Douglas, who's still in the trunk, hears the shot. But at this point, he doesn't know if the officer was shot or if Cantor was shot, and thought if it was the officer that had been shot, he may be next. When Douglas heard the sirens and the squad cars approaching, and now voices, he started pounding on the trunk. The officers, who arrived on scene to back up and assist Deputy Wigan, helped get Douglas out of the trunk and into another squad car so he could warm up. 22-30. While one group of officers is now at the scene where Cantor was shot, the other group of officers and Jim are on foot searching for the other two suspects. In the meantime, they send another officer to Brian's home to notify Wendy. I had been waiting for Brian to get off work and bring home dinner. And I was trying to get Caitlin to go to sleep and she wasn't laying in her crib, wasn't having any of it. So I was back on the bed. Um, I decided I'm just gonna keep her up and let her see dad. And so I was playing with her on in our bedroom, just trying to keep her awake because at this point she's starting to get drowsy. Um, I heard a knock on our door, it was an apartment, so, you know, pretty easy to hear from the bedroom, the front door, and I heard a knock on the door, and as I started walking towards the door, my phone started ringing, and this was at, I don't know, 10.05 maybe at night. I thought that was really odd that my phone would ring at 10 o'clock, but I got someone at the door, and I hear a police radio through the door, and so I think maybe he forgot his keys. So I go and I open up the door, and it's someone I don't recognize. He's not in uniform, but he does have a police radio that I can hear. Um, he said that I have someone coming over that's going to watch Caitlin. I need to take you to the hospital. There's been an incident. And I really just kind of froze and was trying to process all of this and thinking, well, what kind of incident? And you want me to leave my newborn with strangers and go with you, a stranger, and, you know, all of this is going, and then I look back at the officer, and I see the urgency he has, and I hear the chatter and everything going on, and I think, oh, this is bad. Something is bad, and so before we leave, I call my mom at home, and I say, oh, I have to go to the hospital, something happened to Brian, and I need you to come here. There will be people here, but I need you to come and get Caitlin. And so she... I hung up with her. The caretakers of the apartment building came. That's who he had gotten a hold of. They came and then I left. And I kept asking him, is he okay? Is he going to be okay? And he just wouldn't say one way or the other. He just said, we have to just get there. We have to get there. 
Jim and the other officers are still actively tracking the other two suspects on foot, and they're getting close. At 10.07 p.m., dispatch receives another 911 call from a neighbor in the area. Station units on 20th Street. I've got somebody calling from 6581 20th Street North. He's sitting in the house just east of it in the Gray Rambler. He just witnessed two males running around back, climbing on the deck, unknown if it's officers or suspects. Remember, the snow was waist deep and the wind chills were reaching 30 to 40 below zero. So we're getting phone calls from time to time. We're neighbors, because they're seeing all the, the police activity in the neighborhood. And because this is going over several different blocks, you know, they're running through, you know, uh, a set of houses and then onto the next block, running through that set of houses onto the next block. And we're just following their tracks in the foot in the in the snow until they hit the pavement. Then we can't follow them anymore because it's so cold out. They're not making footprints when they hit the hard pavement. But they're not staying on the hard pavement long because then they're sitting ducks because the officers driving around in the area could see them. So from time to time we get calls, and then ultimately we got the final call saying that there's uh, two guys hiding. Um, underneath the deck of this residence and so we're just down the block from them so we've been on fortunately been on their trail the whole time and so we're only a few houses away when this happens so we go uh, running up to that house and we get a good description of where they're at so we make our approach and uh, there's two of them hiding underneath the deck trying to bury themselves in the snow get them in cuffs um, but you know so I had a little sense of relief then because they weren't armed at the time and I'm like oh thank god you know they weren't armed because they could have taken us several different times um, if they if they wanted to but you know this was in January so in February we had a thaw um, of the snow well that homeowner um, when the when the snow started to thaw a brown paper bag um, became visible in the front yard and inside that brown paper bag was some ski masks, two handguns, and then the cash from the robbery from the liquor store. In March, a resident in that neighborhood discovered an orange ski mask and a brown paper bag on the ground on the west side of his home. The bag, still now partially covered in snow, contained a knife and two loaded handguns. One of them was a double-barrel 45 caliber Derringer. While officers were out working two different scenes with all three suspects accounted for, Wendy was being transported to the hospital. I just threw on a jacket, but it was, wasn't a warm jacket. I didn't zip up. I remember just shaking uncontrollably. All the way there, walk in, get escorted into a room. And I walk in the room, and I see Jason, Brian's brother, 
and I see his mom. And at that point, I look up and I see a picture on the wall, like a print that had a glass front that was broken. And I knew that he was dead because I knew that Jason put his fist through it because at the time he had, um, he didn't have a temper, but when he did get upset, it usually meant a fist through something. <laughs> he has come a long way since then, so it's not like that anymore. But I saw the broken window and I, I knew, and I walked in and I said, he's dead as me and his mom nodded and broke down and, or I broke down. She had already been crying and I just sank to the couch and um, uh, I don't remember. People were talking. There was, uh, I said I was going to throw up. There was a garbage can under my head. <laughs> I pushed my head between my knees. I don't remember a lot until they came in and asked if I wanted to go see them. And um, that's when I kind of froze. I I didn't know if I should because what if it would be the last memory I have of him and it's, you know, traumatic and I, I don't want that image to be what I think of when I think of him. And I didn't know what to do and I called my mom and told her and what, what should I do? And she said, you go in there and you be with him and you say goodbye to him. And so I did. My dad was there by that time, so he brought me in and I walked in. It was about as bad as I had worried about. But I um, I just knew, looking at his body, that he was gone. You know, that was his his vehicle of being on this earth. But his soul was gone and I just knew that with certainty and you know I I said goodbye but I knew he wasn't there anymore and I turned around and walked back out I didn't I didn't feel it was doing either of us any good I always kind of had a little bit of regret in that like I should have stayed there longer but it's kind of the same reason I don't really do cemeteries. I, that's not where I feel him, you know. It was just his his body, not his soul. And he was God. So. Brian had been shot five times at close range by Cantor. Two rounds were stopped by his vest. A third round hit him in the abdomen and exited by his lower left shoulder blade. The next two rounds hit him in the neck area, one exiting above his upper right shoulder blade. The last round entered just below his Adam's apple and exited the top right side of his head. Brian had found the suspect vehicle just 10 minutes from the time it was given out. Seven minutes after Brian is found shot, Jim finds the suspect vehicle and starts to follow it. 
Two minutes later, they dump the pickup and split up. Twelve minutes later, Cantor breaks into Thompson's house and kidnaps Douglas at gunpoint. Twenty minutes later, Deputy Wigan finds Cantor and has to shoot him. And then ten minutes later, Jim and the other officers arrest the other two suspects, now identified as Brian Ederhoff and Kenneth Raring Jr., the man who bought the clothesline at the convenience store earlier that evening. In just under an hour and 30 minutes, a liquor store was robbed at gunpoint. An officer stopped the suspects and was shot and killed. A home was broken into and a man was taken at gunpoint as a hostage. The suspects were tracked down. One was shot and killed. Two were taken into custody in a foot chase. This was great police work by multiple agencies working on different radio frequencies, all risking their lives for their community to catch Brian's killer before they could hurt anyone else. These men and women were all heroes that night. Once that happened and then we got the other two in custody, you know, let's be honest, we were all high-fiving each other. Like, I've told Greg, Brian's brother, who was an officer with our department that I worked with, I told him you know, many times I said, although that was the most tragic incident that I'd ever dealt with in my in my 32-year career, getting those guys in custody was the highlight of my career. Something that I'll never forget, something that I'm the most proud of, you know, over and beyond anything else I ever did in my career. For everyone who assisted with the incident, like Brenda, it took a long time to heal from the experience. When you lose an officer like this, it affects everyone's sense of security in a small community like St. Joseph. Oh gosh, the, the ripple effect is unbelievable. When you can sit back now and you look at the bigger picture of so many lives that were touched and, and in so many bad ways that lives were touched and, and the healing that needed to take place in such a large volume was just unbelievable. I think that it really kind of hit me more towards morning, somewhere four or five o'clock in the morning when, you know, I'm night shift doing rounds and all of a sudden it's just like, oh my gosh. I started feeling really nervous, like not, um, not even wanting to be by myself, not wanting to go down the hall because, you know, what else was going to happen? Um, because I had, you know, heard through the grapevine that Brian didn't make it. Then you hear all these little other bits and pieces of things that were going on and you're, you know, I kind of realized like how big this thing really was. And then getting home in the morning and like, holy cow, you know, so many things happened. So many people were impacted. So many people were affected, you know, just really losing that sense of security. You know, you, you, you lose the, the, the fact that you don't feel, you don't feel safe in your own house anymore, you know, cause this is St. Joe and nothing big happens in St. Joe, nothing like this. You know, going around in my house and making sure all my doors are locked and, and making sure the curtains are pulled and, you know, just making sure that everybody is okay and, and driving home and driving to work and not wanting to drive on the road that, you know, there's a memorial set up there when I came home and, you know, just seeing those flashbacks of things that had happened out on the road and when it was so cold and, you know, so you lose that sense of security and that was, that was really hard, you know, as the time went on, you you kind of have to go through the stages of grief because, you know, you're, you're angry. Why did somebody do this in general? Why did this, why did this family lose their, their father, their husband? You know, why, why did these kids?
kids do this? You know, you know, it's just uh, the whole gamut of emotions. Why did he, why did that guy pull the trigger? And why did I have to be there? And, and now I don't have my own self sense of security anymore and, and not, you know, feeling safe in my own shoes sometimes, you know, you just, you, you worry about so many things that you never worried about before. And, you know, that, that took a long time to get over that. It took me a long time to be able to drive on that road again. It took me a long time to just not get all nervous as all get out when there's two cars pulled over on the side of the road and there's, there's flashing lights, you know, oh my gosh, am I going to have to stop again? What am I going to see this time? You know, so that, you know, that, that was something that took a long time. You know, when, when I stopped with Brian, you, you stop because you, that's what you do. You know, that, that's, you don't even think twice about it. That's what you do. And um, that sense of, that sense was taken away from me for a really long time of if something would have happened, would I have stopped? I would have. But the anxiety was there, um, which, you know, you never, I've never had before. So that was, that was hard to, uh, a hard pill to swallow. The community of St. Joseph came out by the hundreds to support the police department and to support Brian's family. Wendy Schneider also told those gathered tonight to work for a better community, one her husband would have wanted to live in. After the remarks, those attending carried candles and flowers to the nearby St. Joseph police station. Two men are in jail tonight accused of killing Kleinfelter. They'll be in court again in two weeks. For St. Joseph police officer Brian Kleinfelter tonight, the group met at a school and then marched to the St. Joseph Police Department. I was, was lost, Kleinfelter, as you know, was shot to death last week after pulling over three robbery suspects fleeing in a stolen truck. I just want people, people that knew him, to remember how much he loved life. He really did. And that's why I can't believe that this is over. In St. Joseph, Raylan Story, 4 News. This Tuesday, a grand jury will consider first-degree murder charges against the two men being held in Kleinfelter's killing. Brian Ederhoff and Kenneth Raring are being held on a million dollars bail each. After Brian's death, Wendy also struggled with the Monday morning quarterbacking of Brian's decisions that night. One of the things that I've struggled with for many years is all of the Monday morning quarterbacking that happened. You know, this young cop wasn't trained well. He shouldn't have done this. He shouldn't have done that. And, you know, I think in hindsight, we all know that. But I really don't... I, you know, Brian was ready to go home and heard the call and decided, well, what the heck, I'm just going to go look. You know, that's what his co-worker that was in the office with him said, that he said. And the description came through as a different truck than the one he pulled over. And so, you know, that was part of why I think he wasn't as alert as he should have been. And he didn't wait like he should have. And that's always been something that has been hard for us because, you know, if, if you want to blame someone for their own death, that's kind of a sad state of affairs. So, um, you know, just knowing him and knowing what went through his mind, I, I really don't think he thought that this was going to be anything because it's St. Joe and it's Forty Blue and, you know, nothing is anything. <laughs> but the... Uh, 
license plate with snowpack, so there was no license plate, and that should have probably been his first clue. But I just, it all happened so fast. From what I understand, you know, the defendant saying later, he walked up, rolled down the window, shot him, and took off. You know, it was, it was, yeah, he didn't stand a chance, but, you know, obviously it's something that we all wish would have had a different ending. But, um, I really, I really don't believe, you know, he just threw his training out the window. I think it was more about the situation and, and the not matching and the just, what the heck, I'm going to try. But who knows? It might be something else completely someday that I'll find out. But, yeah. During one of the interviews with Ken Raring, he described the shooting. You described in earlier uh, about driving through St. Joe and being stopped by the police officer. Were you still in the middle of middle yeah. seat? Okay, why don't you tell me what you remember about the shooting? So as far as I know, the officer came up, asked for Tom's ID. It looked like he's getting his ID. And I just started looking out towards the windshield, the window over here, and so all of a sudden I heard caps. You see the officer dropped When you say caps, you mean Chevy pickup had been stolen in the city of Golden Valley, Minnesota, sometime between January 12th and January 17th. Cantor's girlfriend admitted to being involved in the theft. She indicated she assisted by driving around the area looking for a truck to steal. She found the white truck and called Cantor, who responded in a tow truck he owned, and they hooked up the truck and stole it, taking it back to her residence and putting it in her garage. When authorities executed a search warrant on the vehicle, they found cigarettes and liquor that were stolen from the liquor store. They also found the rest of the plastic clothesline. They found duct tape, and they found two black stocking caps with holes cut out for eyes and mouth. Cantor's girlfriend told investigators that the gun used was one that Cantor had purchased for her a few months earlier, and it was usually kept in the bedroom, sometimes under their pillow. She also told investigators of the two other handguns that Cantor had recently purchased. She told investigators Cantor was not much of a drinker, but used marijuana, and earlier that day had told her he had taken his first hit of acid the night before the shooting. She said Cantor didn't like law enforcement, and she told investigators that he had been arrested when he was 18 in Grand Forks, North Dakota on the transportation of firearms over state lines. Cantor served several months in jail, and then when he got out, he indicated to his girlfriend that he would never go back. 
She told investigators that Cantor and Ederhoff had initially planned to rob the Plaza Park State Bank in Waite Park. Cantor had instructed her to park across the street in the Crossroads parking lot. He told her to wait there, and when they had finished the robbery, they would drive the truck to her, and then they would abandon it, fleeing in her vehicle. She said they all went to the bank, but they never followed through with that robbery. Later, they decided they would rob the Kentucky Fried Chicken restaurant. Cantor asked her to call the restaurant to check when they closed. They told her they were closing at 7 p.m. early due to the extreme cold. She denied calling the liquor store to check their hours. However, later it was determined that she did just that. She was guaranteed immunity from prosecution by the Stearns County Attorney's Office for her testimony against the three men. This community, this agency, and this family were forced to endure two trials against the remaining two suspects due to two mistrials. The first one ended up right away as a mistrial. They couldn't come to a, a, an agreement. And then the second trial, we had a guilty verdict. And then I don't even think we got out of the courthouse before they said, wait a minute, one of the jurors handed the judge a note and said they felt coerced into the verdict. And that one got thrown out too. Yep, they both ended poorly. So of the two defendants, one of them had taken a plea bargain and actually has, my father-in-law was very interested in talking with him and just, they actually met after he was released from prison. He, he came over to my in-law's house and sat with him and talked about how, you know, how much that impacted his life and how he really tried to straighten out in prison and he you know, had a job and they just felt like if there's ever an outcome for someone like that, he had the right one. The other guy never took any accountability and, you know, when we were in trial, I always felt like, you know, he and his family were so cold and so almost like we did something wrong, you know, and um, never took accountability. But basically the Stearns County Attorney's Office came to us and said, we tried twice, we don't think we can try a third time. You know, as much as we don't want to do this, we think it's fair to give him the same plea bargain that we gave the first guy. And we just think that's the best way at this point and as, you know we agreed there's if that's all you can do that's all you can do so it was 13 years and it truly was you know we're at the point where we accepted it both were sentenced to just under 20 years for their part in brian's murder they were released after just 13 years in 2009 Brian's funeral was held on February 2nd, 1996, with hundreds of officers from around the state, region, and country attending. I just remember all the uniforms, walking in, seeing all the uniforms and uh, bagpipes, but I still can't listen to those to this day without, you know, crying. You know, um, his, Brian's dad spoke at the funeral. Um, I remember that pretty vividly yeah um 
I remember walking outside to the cars and the sidewalks were all lined up with officers at attention and several of them didn't have coats on. And even the ones I did, I just, you could see them shaking from the cold. And I was, I just, I was like, guys, go get coats on, my goodness, what are you doing? I felt so bad, but it was so impactful, you know, seeing all of these people and seeing, I, I remember the incredible cold at the grave site. It was unreal. Only my face was exposed, but it was, that was the day the governor shut the schools down and the guy couldn't play taps. It was too cold. He tried. He tried, but it was so cold. It was just, wow. 21 gun salute, you know, that shattering. And then um, wanting to stay. I just, I really wanted to stay with him at the grave, but I couldn't, you know. I just, I, we physically couldn't be out there any longer. Oh, it was just too cold. Yeah, it was. Wendy and Brian's family took the money donated to them when Brian died, and they started the Brian Kleinfelter Foundation. After Brian died, people donated a lot of money. They sent money. They were so generous. And all the money that was designated memorial was put into a foundation. And Dave and I were the primary people and then we assembled a board um, but for many years it was Dave and I and then eventually Dave unfortunately got sick and died a couple years ago and so then Jason kind of took over at that point in, in involvement we really scaled it back but there's still money in the foundation and our main objective is growing great kids that's what we felt like if someone had been more involved in these three defendants' lives, the people that took Brian's life, maybe they wouldn't have gone down the path that they did. And so we're really trying to make meaningful connections between adults and kids. We do that now through grants for nonprofits and for agencies that can that have programming that is geared towards connecting adults and kids. So we, you know, we give grants that way, and then we also do scholarships. We have three different scholarships that are geared towards people going into law enforcement as well as public safety officers' children going into whatever they choose. So, yeah, that's how we have, you know, most recently that's what that looks like. We've done many different things over 25 years, but this is kind of what we've settled into now, so... In 2018, after a short battle with cancer, David, Brian's dad, passed away in December at Quiet Oaks Hospice House in St. Augusta. When David was in the hospital prior to going into hospice, the nurse that was assigned to him was Brenda. The nurse that held Brian's hand and comforted him after he was shot 
in 1996. I came on shift uh, one morning and one of my coworkers had told me, I've got somebody special for you to take care of. And she didn't say anything else. And I clicked under my assignment and I looked and I saw the name. And you know, in the computer, people's pictures are in there as well. And I looked and the first thing I said is, oh my God. And the first thing, and I'm like, this is Brian's dad. And just instant flashbacks back to that night on the road. I'm like, oh my God, I don't know if I can do this. I, I was just really, I, I was very emotional about it and shed a few tears. And then I decided, okay, nope, I can do this. I, I can I can take care of him. Um, I, I can do it. And I had to tell myself that. And so I decided there were a few people around me who knew my connection. And I said, please, please, please don't tell them. Don't tell them anything. I don't want them to know anything. So I proceeded to go on and, and take care of David and the family and, you know, made some big decisions that day and the next day, you know, he was going to be going home. Well, things didn't work out that way and he ended up, um, David ended up going home on hospice and then you know, we talked about the hospice house and stuff like that and all of a sudden I don't know what it, I said something and I don't know what it was. I think it was probably bothering bothered him a little bit because all of a sudden David's wife said, I know who you are. And it was right before they were going out of the room to wheel him to Clyde Oaks. And she goes, I know who you are. You're her. You're the one that stopped. And then I said, yeah, I am. And, um, and she came and just gave me a big hug and thanked me and then proceeded to tell the rest of the, tell the boys and everybody else that was there that, that I was the one that stopped with Brian and, and they were just like totally surprised by that and, and um, very, very grateful. And um, we were able to connect again. Care 11 News did a story and just got to reconnect and, and just tell each other how we, you know, how, how we felt and, and they could understand why I'm like, I, you know, I didn't want anybody to know anything because I'm just a person who just did what everybody else does, you know, everybody should do. And so, yeah, that was, pretty amazing to come full circle you know I always wondered why did why did God do that you know why did I why was I there why did I stop at that precise moment in time why 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 did I get up off the couch and leave right then and there you know there's so many things that you know just had to go into play for me to be at that spot at that exact time to be at that spot in a safe time where there wasn't any you know the bad guys weren't there and but you know, um, yeah, it was crazy, unbelievable. I mean, it's a, it it, come, it it came full circle, and you know, and and it, then it was the realization of after the fact, and after I could sit down and think about it, it's like, oh my God, that that's why, that's why God put me there. Shortly after Brian's death, this incredible community and Brian's law enforcement family had one more surprise for Wendy. You know, the part that I always struggled with, you know, was looking at Wendy with this small little baby that they just had and her knowing that she's going to, you know, uh, that she just lost her husband. She's going to have to try and raise this kid on her own. I mean, that just, uh, it just tears your heart out. As, as well as it did everybody. You know, all the law enforcement and uh, and other folks within the community got together and we built her a house. 
So we're over there all the way from pouring concrete to framing to, you know, the building community did a wonderful job. The, you know, there were several, um, you know, businesses in town that uh, provided products for nothing. Uh, everything was donated. Well, today, his wife and daughter experienced a life event of an entirely different nature. Our John Stone just returned from St. Cloud, and, and what they did really was uh, stepped into the scene of a bittersweet milestone. And that's right, Chris. Before Brian's death, he and his wife, Wendy, had just started the process of looking for a home. They had a newborn daughter, and they needed room to grow. Starting today, that home is being built with the sweat and soul of people who can help, a process that Wendy says is almost too touching for words. Nail by nail, piece by piece, a dream is built. An American home, the American dream. A few lots away in this St. Cloud community, the foundations of a dream spawned by a nightmare. Wow, <laughs> it is so incredible. The newly poured footings of the walls that will house Wendy and Caitlin Kleinfelter, the family of slain St. Joseph police officer, Brian Kleinfelter. This is our dream come true, and um, it's as hard as it's gonna be to, to make it happen without him. Um, it, it's gonna happen, and it's gonna it's going to make life for us, um, I think, just a little bit more bearable. It is Wendy's first look at her future home, but it follows the collective efforts of an entire community. The spirit of folks like Bill Demo, who set down his stapler at this home this morning to pour concrete at Wendy's. Oh, it definitely feels good. <laughs> and David Worche, whose company donated the lot. The community has really, really been happy and excited to help out. Every component of Wendy and Caitlin's home is being donated by people who feel the need to give. And it feels so good to be doing something for her because I know she lost a loved one who is doing something for all of us. Wendy says there is beauty in the wood and dirt and concrete because this is to be her home, the American dream she and Brian had strived for. Wendy and Caitlin's home will be completed in October. The land, the labor, the materials, virtually every element of its construction is being donated by people in and around the St. Cloud area. Even though the Minnesota Bureau of Criminal Apprehension cleared Benton County Deputy Nancy Wigan of any wrongdoing in shooting Cantor, her career in law enforcement was short-lived after that. She was out of work for months afterwards. She was fighting through the emotions of taking Cantor's life. She also battled Benton County for reimbursement for lost wages. The county refused, saying her injuries were emotional, not physical, and therefore she didn't qualify for workers' compensation benefits. Back then, there was little, if any, consideration for mental health cases for law enforcement, and cumulative stress and PTSD were still thought of as something in the military, not in law enforcement. Deputy Wigan said that who she was before she pulled the trigger ceased to exist after she was forced to shoot Cantor. Deputy Wigan was one of the heroes in this story. However, the stress of the incident and its aftermath cost her her career.
Brian was one of those that, you know, everyone got along with him. The community, people that he had to deal with, he was a hard charger. Uh, he's just he's one of those that, just a good guy all around. He was only a dad for two months, but he was um, a really great dad in two months. It was, it was really incredible to watch that Kleinfelter family come together and just support each other. You know, because some of the things that, you know, people don't realize is, is uh, like Jason Kleinfelter, which was Brian's brother, was one of our police reserve. And Greg Kleinfelter, um, his other brother, um, actually owned his own business. But after Brian's death, he, he goes into law enforcement and becomes an officer with our department at St. Cloud, all because of Brian. And so it was, you know, they ultimately got together and they opened up a business uh, for law enforcement and public safety products. So it, it was uh, it, just one of the nicest families you'll ever meet. Brian Kleinfelter was a hero. Brian risked his life to help identify and stop these three armed men, and he paid the ultimate sacrifice doing so. Brian's dedication to his community and his quick actions helped end this terrible night for this community. Had Brian not found the truck so quickly, they may have gotten out of the area and victimized others, or worse. It's not how Brian died that made him a hero. It's how he lived. Service before self. Brian Kleinfelter was the first officer killed in the line of duty in St. Joseph, Minnesota. He is recognized each year during police week at the Law Enforcement Memorial at the State Capitol in St. Paul by the Minnesota Law Enforcement Memorial Association. And in Washington, D.C., at the National Law Enforcement Memorial Wall, which bears his name, along with over 22,000 other fallen heroes. If you'd like to support the Brian Kleinfelter Foundation, you can find out more at www.growgreatkids.org. Thank you for spending the time to listen, learn about, and honor the memory of this fallen hero. Make sure you take the time to thank your local law enforcement for their service and their sacrifice. And don't forget to thank their families too. They also sacrifice so much for our safety. It's up to us to help ensure the sacrifices made by these fallen heroes and by their families are never forgotten. So please share this podcast with family and friends. Until next time, this is the Officer Down Memorial Podcast. I'm Scott Rose. Thanks for listening.